Happy Lord's Day. We are continuing to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you haven't heard that greeting before, Christians gather all around the world on the Lord's Day, Sunday, to celebrate not only the death of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection from the dead. So whether you're having a really good week or whether you're having a really terrible week, there is resurrection hope because Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead to give us hope. So we hope you feel that resurrection hope and encouragement in some way this Sunday morning. My name is PJ, I'm one of the co-pastors here, and it's a joy to bring God's word before you this morning. And so, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, there's a black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you or somewhere around you. Go ahead and grab that. You're going to need that to follow along with the sermon. We're going through the whole chapter this morning. So we have to move quickly and um, touch on all of these chapters without switch switch mics. Okay, touch on all of these chapters. I mean, all of these verses without being able to go super in depth in them. Testing. This is good. Matthew chapter eighteen. If if you have one of those black hardcover Bibles, you can go to page eight seventy two. It begins on page eight seventy two. And it goes all the way to page 873. Matthew chapter 18. If this is your first time looking at a Bible, the, when I say chapter 18, that's the big numbers. And when I say verses 1 through 35, those are the small numbers. We're going to read all of them now. Let's hear God's word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell fire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven will, can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay for the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he was not willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the glories of Jesus here in this passage. We pray that you would teach us that you would reprove us. We pray that you would correct us, and we pray that you would train us in righteousness so that we might be men and women of God, complete and competent and equipped for every good work. Lord Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing except waste our time. So Lord, help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to love, help us to hear your word and attend to these words with humility and expectation. Lord, you're speaking. Help us to hear and change our lives, Lord, by this word in specific and general ways, in personal and corporate ways today. In Jesus' name, we ask for your spirit's power. Amen. Amen. We just took in nine members last Sunday, pending a few transfer letters and pending a baptism that we're about to do today. And so we want to praise God for that. Praise the Lord for new members. We also transferred three members out and have another, a number of other members who are in the process of transferring their membership as they believe God is leading them to another church, another church family for the glory of Christ and for the great commission. And we, got, we want to praise God for that too. We want to praise God for members transferring in. We want to praise God for member, members transferring out as well to do God's work elsewhere. God is good and he's working through all of these things. And we want to, as this church, we want to be a great church. We want to be a great church. And if we think about it individually, we want greatness too. Everyone wants greatness in a sense. We want greatness in the kingdom of God. Now, if we're honest, we want glory, we want greatness, and we want significance. We don't want to waste our lives. There's part of us that doesn't want to be forgotten. And that's normal. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. With Christ in the center, and with Christ as the goal, these ambitions become godly and great ambitions. When Christ is marginalized from the center and he's kind of on the side and he's not the goal, then that's when it is sinful and the apex or at least the demonstration and expression of idolatry and foolishness. So we want to be a great church, a great Christ-centered church that moves towards Jesus and is for Jesus. Now, no church is perfect, and every church member has felt the imperfections of his or her church's fellowship, their church's community, and their shared life. Why? Because people in church are proud. Others aren't welcoming. Others look down on others and despise others or look self-righteously down on others. Sin is ignored or denied or belittled or rationalized. People are too passive. Others are too aggressive. Some are intimidating. Others are intimidated. The church then can become a weekly activity where we gather together, but life is not shared deeply and love is not exercised truly and regularly. A church can grow 
in reinforced hypocrisy, week after week after week, going deeper in hypocrisy. It can become a community of performance and routine and self-righteous expectations rather than a community of grace and loving Jesus. Just another Sunday to put my mask on and pretend everything is okay while I know deep down that not everything is okay. There's a difference between communities of grace and communities of, per of performance, and that distinction is important. But equally important, maybe even more important, is the fact that we have other people who are in Christ and we should continually thank God for any degree of life we share. We need to take temperature from time to time. We need to take the spiritual temperature of our church. That's what this sermon is about. But gratitude should be more regular than temperature checks. Worshiping God and praising God and engaging in love is more imp important than checking the temperature on your relationships and on the church. Yet, from time to time, we do need to take the temperature of the church. We need to measure our church family according to scripture. And so Tim Chester, who writes about this idea of communities of grace and communities of performance, gives some differences between the two. In a community of performance, and just check yourself here, do you relate to people with a dynamic of performance or do you relate to people with a dynamic of grace? In communities of performance, the leaders appear not to struggle. In a community of grace, leaders are vulnerable. In a community of performance, the community appears respectable. In a community of grace, the community is messy. In a community of performance, meetings must be a polished performance. In a community of grace, meetings are just one part of family life, just one part of community life. In a community of grace, identity is found in your ministry. What do you do? In a community of grace, identity is found in Christ. In a community of performance, failure is devastating. But in a dynamic of grace, failure is disappointing, but not devastating. You can move on. In a community of performance, actions are driven by duty. In grace, they are actions are driven by joy. In performance, conflict is suppressed or ignored. In grace, conflict is addressed openly and directly. In a community performance, the focus is on orthodoxy and behavior, right theology, right thinking, right behavior, allowing the people think that they're okay. In a community of grace, the focus is on the affections of the heart. Who do you love? What do you love and why? With a strong view of sin and grace. So Tim Chester, Tim Chester wrote that chart and he says, he continues, in a performance-oriented church, people pretend to be okay because their standing within the church depends on it. A sordid person, he's British, a sordid person is seen as the standard or the norm, and anyone who is struggling is seen as substandard and sub-Christian. In this kind of environment, to acknowledge that you're struggling with sin is difficult and distressing. But this is the opposite of grace. Grace acknowledges that we are all sinners, we're all messed up people, all struggling, all doubting at a functional level. But grace also affirms that in Christ, we all belong, all make the grade, all are welcome, all are Christians. There are no lesser Christians. He continues, imagine such a church for a moment. Here's Andrew. He sometimes uses porn because he struggles to find refuge in God. Here's Pauline. She sometimes has panic attacks because she struggles to believe in the care of her heavenly father. Here's Abdul. He sometimes loses his temper because he struggles to believe that God is in control. Here's Georgina. She sometimes has bouts of depression because she struggles to believe God's grace. When they come together, they accept one another and celebrate God's grace towards each other. They rejoice that they are all children of God through the work of Christ. And they remind one another of the truths each of them needs to keep going and to change. It's a community of grace a community of hope, and a community of change, end quote. For the church to be a community of grace, grace must be specifically applied to us and our relationships with others. I mean, that is a wonderful vision of a church, right? I mean, wouldn't you love all your relationships to have that grace dynamic flowing in it? I'd love that. We'd love that for our church. But um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer war warns us in his book on community. He writes this. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. 
God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. You guys hear that? Hear that warning? Do we want a community of grace? Yes. Can you idolize a community of grace that you're not actually loving your church community? Yes. So we should want the ideal, but we must be careful to not make an ideal an idol. You gotta love the people in front of you. We are a group of messed up sinners, right? Saved by God's grace, but saved from our sins, and we still have indwelling sin in us. Here's the main idea. You were made for greatness, and God's people are to be his great people, his forgiven people, his gospel people. So here's the main goal. That's the main idea I want you to understand, greatness. Here's the main idea. Pursue true greatness together. That's what God wants you to do. He wants us as a community to humbly, not self-righteously, not idolatrously, but humbly, he wants us to pursue true greatness together with these five habits. So here are five habits to pursuing true greatness together. Are you guys ready? We got a hustle here. We got five habits here in these 35 verses. Number one, look at verses one through four. Here's the question. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So what does Jesus do? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's the disciples question? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? We learn from Mark and Luke, they're actually arguing with each other. They're arguing each other because they wanna be greater than each other. So they're competing with each other. Jesus says, hey, what are you guys arguing about? And they're like, nothing. And they're all quiet, they don't wanna say, and then they say, like to try to sort of change the subject with Jesus, they're like, Lord, we're not really, we're not, it's not a big deal what we're arguing about, but we have a question for you. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? So even, even with, they still take their argument and they ask Jesus the question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And so Jesus goes on in Mark and Luke. It's a shorter passage. He only does verses uh, verses five through, or I guess verses one through, no, let's just say, um, yeah, five through nine is what, what, what Jesus gives in Mark and Luke. Matthew gives us a whole lot more. We got 35 verses here. There's a lot more for us to think about when we think about the greatness according to Matthew. And so we gotta hear what Matthew's saying here. So what is greatness? Who is great in the kingdom? Jesus says, truly I tell you in verse three, unless you turn and become like little what? Children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what do you have to do to be great? He kind of didn't answer the question exactly, right? What is greatness in the kingdom? And he answers how you what? Enter the kingdom. Okay, hold on, let's get this straight. Before you even talk about being great in the kingdom, are you even in the kingdom? You might not even be in the kingdom, right? You gotta be in the kingdom before you can be great in the kingdom. So Jesus doesn't answer their question of greatness with greatness. He answers their question of greatness with access, with entrance. How do you get in? Answer, turn and become like little children. If you don't, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to turn or you need to change. Another way of translating this, unless you change and become like children. Everybody wants to change. What are you trying to change into? Here Jesus is saying, change into what? Becoming like what? A little child, like little children. Verse four, now he answers the question, verse four. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the what? Greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So who are the great ones in the kingdom of heaven? Those who humble themselves like, like a child. So habit number one, humbly trust Jesus like a child. Humbly trust Jesus like a child. If you don't convert, if you don't change, if you don't become like a child, you are not a Christian. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven because to become a Christian, you need to trust Jesus. You need to trust his words. You need to trust his work. You need to trust his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his salvation, his lordship, his value, his majesty, his beauty. Do you trust in Jesus like a child trusts their parents? Even when they don't know where they're going, they'll still hold their parents' hand and follow their parents anyways? Is that how you are with Jesus? That is necessary to become a Christian. 
Only Christians enter the kingdom of heaven because to become a Christian, you have to humbly trust in Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as treasure. If they have not, if you have not, you are not a Christian. So what does it mean to become like a child? To humbly trust in the one who's leading you. Verse 4 gives the answer, right? It's, it's to humble yourself. Look at verse 4 again. Whoever humbles himself like this child. D.A. Carson explains, the child is held up as an ideal, not of innocence or purity or faith, but of humility. And, listen to this, unconcern for social status. Unconcern for social status. Jesus advocates humility of mind, not childishness, not being naive. With such humility comes childlike trust, D.A. Carson says. So becoming like a child before Jesus Christ means you trust him. A child is in one sense gullible, but really confident, right? They just trust their parents. And that's how we are to be with Jesus. We don't understand everything, but we're confident in Jesus. We don't know all the answers, but we know he's right. And we know that he's worth following. And he's, and he's worth trusting and obeying and giving up our lives for and taking up our crosses daily to follow him. At this point, the disciples weren't sure that they could trust Jesus' direction, right? When he said, I'm going to go to the cross, Peter tried to rebuke him. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on God's concerns, but on man's concerns. That is not childlike trust. You start to set your mind on man's concerns. And you know what? Children don't set their minds on the man's concerns yet, right? They're too young for that. For the love of money, we read earlier, Peter read, for the love of money is the what? Root of what? All kinds of evil. If you put before a two-year-old candy and $1,000, what are they going for? The candy. They, they don't love money yet. They don't care about that. Or, or even if you talk about like classism and racism and ethnocentrism, kids play in the playground, they don't care. They just want to play. They, just want, they, don't, they don't care about social status. They haven't got the, the, the operations of the world to manipulate for their selfishness. Now, kids are still selfish. They just don't have those mature tuggings of the world and the, the machinations and the, the structures and ways of ordering and, and finding yourself in the world so that they can use that for um, pressing their supremacy over other kids. They'll fight over a toy, right? They'll push each other for a toy. And so in that sense, they are still selfish. I'm not saying kids are not selfish. But they don't care about social status. These disciples... They want to be great over each other. We want to have the best church. Our church is better than your church. This, this member is, more better, is better than that member. This, this, this pastor, this pastoral team is better than that pastoral team. And that is ungodly. That's not greatness. That concern for social status in comparing yourself to one another is an adult problem in many ways. So you need to humble yourself like a child. Trust the Lord. Trust him to give you your status that you need. You don't need the validation of others in this way. Why should we trust in Jesus? Well, he's the one who saves us. He's the one who calls us to follow him. He's the one who called us to fish for people. He's the Messiah who died for our sins and rose from the dead. If you're not a Christian, this is the main message of Christianity. God created you to know him and love him and enjoy him and trust him and reflect him in this world but we have sinned against God and rebelled against God and disobeyed God and distrusted God. And so we are sinners who deserve damnation to go to hell. We deserve to go to hell for our sins, all of us in this room and everyone outside this room. Every human deserves to go to hell because of their sin and because they love other things more than God. I love other things more than God. We build our identity on other things more than God. And because of that, we deserve God's judgment. But God sent his son, Jesus, to live the life we should have lived to die on the cross for your sins and to rise from the dead so that if you repent, if you change, if you become like a child and trust in Jesus and stop trusting yourself, your methodology, your religion, your goodness, your philosophy, if you trust in Jesus instead, you'll be saved. You'll be one of those who enter the kingdom of God. You'll be one of the great ones in the kingdom. So I have a question for you. Who are you ultimately trusting with your life and direction? Don't forget who you are. Humility and humble faith is not only the point of conversion, it's the pattern of the converted. This is how you grow as a Christian. You don't stop after you become a Christian by being humble and childlike. You keep trusting God. 
and you fight the skepticism in your mind, the cynicism in your mind that tells you to not trust what God actually says. All right, so that's how you become, that's how you enter the kingdom and how you become great, but how should you relate to other Christians? Because these guys were worried about social status. How do you How do you do this well? Look at verses five through nine. The answer is welcome other Christians. Look at verse five. Whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. So if you welcome another Christian, any Christian, every Christian, when you welcome them, you welcome who? You welcome Jesus. That's what verse five says, right? Whoever welcomes one of these little ones welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And those are fighting words. You're better off dead than causing one of these Christians, these little ones. Now remember, little ones here is an analogy for Christians. It's not just talking about treating children a certain way. It's talking about how you treat other Christians. Christians are the little ones. You cause one of these little ones to fall away from Jesus, to stumble in sin and fall away because you're not welcoming of them, you're pressing yourself above them, you're better off dead. You might as well just grab a huge kettlebell that's, you know, 500-pound kettlebell, put a chain around your neck, wear it as a necklace, and jump in the water. You might as well. You're better off drowning in the depths of the sea. So Jesus says in verse seven, woe to the world because of offenses, because they offend Christians. He's talking about non-Christians now offending Christians and causing them to stumble and trying to pull them away from Jesus. For offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. That's Jesus' warning to non-Christians. But you know what? Christians can cause other Christians to stumble too, right? This is not just for non-Christians. Yes, the world causes us to stumble. Yes, the world needs to be on, on notice and warned that they are better off dead and Jesus will judge, but Christians need to be warned too. You can cause other people to stumble with the way you interact with them in your Christian life. And so Jesus says in verse eight, if your hand or foot causes you to fall away, what should you do? Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. In other words, if you don't cut your hand off, if you don't cut your feet off, if you don't take seriously not only humbling yourself like a child, but if you don't take seriously welcoming other Christians and being careful to not stumble them with your sinful offenses, if you're not careful, you might not be a Christian. You're going to the eternal fire. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hellfire. Brothers and sisters, Christians, even non-Christians, run from Stumbling and hindering Christians from following Jesus. With all your might, do your best to welcome Christians and push them to Jesus. Stop blocking them and planting seeds of foolish thoughts and words that push them in the wrong direction. So that's what we need to do. Secondly, we need to welcome other Christians, because we will be held accountable. This is Jesus's way of applying Genesis 12 too. God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you or those who hold you with contempt. If you hold in contempt the people of Abraham, those who believe in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ, the seed, the seed of Abraham, if you hold them in contempt, God will curse you. Because if you're for Jesus, you're for his people. If you welcome Jesus' people, you welcome Jesus. If you, call, if you don't welcome them, if you push away the people of Jesus, you push away Jesus. You bless those who um, God has blessed, you're blessed. Because that makes you a Christian. That means you, you honor Jesus. You curse those whom God has blessed, then you're cursed. You reject them. Okay, so we need to humble ourselves like children if we're gonna pursue true greatness. Humility like a child means we need to be welcoming other Christians. That's as far as Mark and Luke go with this conversation on greatness. Matthew extends this true greatness and this true welcoming spirit with three other points. So now if we want to say, okay, well, what else does it mean to welcome Matthew? You're giving us more. What are you giving us that Luke and Mark don't give us? 
What are you showing us about true greatness and true welcoming that we should know as Christians? Well, here's the third one. Third habit. Look at verse 10. See to it that you don't what? Despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view. Well, let's just stick with the command. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. So what's the point? What's the third point? Don't look down on other Christians. Christian, don't look down on other Christians. Or another way to say it, or say it, to say it positive, positively, value other Christians. Don't devalue them. Don't belittle them. Don't despise them. Don't think little of them. Don't think lesser of them than they actually are before the Lord. That's the command. See to it that you don't despise, devalue, look down on, think little of, think lesser of one of these little ones. Now, most of us have a Christian who annoys us, right? Most of us, have, yes, okay, yes, you do, yeah, I know. You're speaking for all of us. Most of us have a Christian who annoys us or who we think little of or we don't mind avoiding. Ah, it's cool if I don't see that person this week. I'm cool with that. Now, I want you to think of that person in your, in your mind. Get the name in your mind. Got it? Now, on the count of three, I want you to say the name out loud. Ready? I'm just, I'm just, just kidding. That was a joke, yeah. No, don't, don't say it out loud. But you have someone in your mind, though. You know you do. Um, now, we have Christians that we're tempted to despise, that we're tempted to belittle, that we're tempted to think lesser of. Now, you have that person in your mind. And this command is for you thinking about them. Don't devalue them. Don't think little of them. Now, we got to even back up beyond this because it's not just specific Christians, that's true. But this can also be systemic. This can be a cultural pattern. So there might be, I look down on Christians of different ethnicities or different cultures or the other gender, male or female. Or it could be class. I look down on Christians who are poorer or who are richer. Or I look down on Christians who are older or who are younger. Right? There are, there are different ways of just even having a pattern in your life of, of, of types of Christians that you're tempted to devalue and belittle. And this is a warning against all of that. Now, Jesus gives us three reasons why we should not devalue or look down on other Christians. And the first one, there's a lot to say on it, so I'm not going to say anything about it except just, just to read the verse. I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm sorry. I'm going to explain it to you later. But the short answer is I don't know the exact answer. I have two guesses. But um, Jesus gives us three points to help us value every Christian. The first one is a bit difficult. Look at verse 10. First, you shouldn't look down on other Christians because, look at verse 10, because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. So why shouldn't you look down on other Christians? Because that Christian's angel is continually in view of the face of the Father in heaven. So the basic point there is that God's paying attention to it and God is noticing you looking down on that other Christian, okay? There's more to say about that, but we're moving on to the second point. Secondly, don't look down on other Christians because, look at verses 12 and 13, why? Second reason, what do you think? If someone has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he what? rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. Here's reason number two. If God rejoices over that one sheep that you find annoying or of lesser value, if God rejoices over them, why would you not welcome them? Why would you look down on the one that the father is rejoicing in that he found? He cherishes them. He treasures them. He values them. Why would you not? Why would you look down on them? There's a third reason. Look at verse 14. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So God doesn't want any of these little ones to perish. In other words, God wants all of them to make it to the end. God wants to hold all of them fast. 
And God wants to save them to the uttermost, Hebrews 7.25. He wants to save, he doesn't want them to just be predestined and called and justified. He wants them to eventually be glorified. And he doesn't want to lose any of them, even the ones that you don't like, even the ones that you're tempted to devalue, even the kinds of Christians from a different denomination, a different church polity or conviction that you're tempted to look down on. God doesn't want any single one of them to perish. And so therefore we should, must, and get to value them. We get to value them. God will not allow them to perish. And so we need to value them the way God values them. If we love God, we reflect God. That's what godliness means. To be godly is to be like God. So if God values them, he rejoices over them, he wants to hold them all the way to the end, he's paying attention to them because their angels are representing them in some way in heaven. If God is attentive and joyful and intentional and resolved, then you should value every single Christian and not despise even one of these little ones. All right, I get it. Okay, so don't devalue these people. But PJ, like if we are in a church family together and we're like valuing each other and we're welcoming each other, what if this one brother or sister just keeps sinning against me? Like it's hard to value them when they're offending me, when they're hurting me, when they're disobeying God and sinning against me. Like I, I get it, I love Jesus and I know Jesus loves them and I'm supposed to value them, but it hurts. And you know what? According to James 4, sin divides, right? Sin divides. Conflict comes up from the selfishness of the heart and it divides people and conflict enters into communities. It enters into relationships. How do you keep a community of grace when that's happening? Well, in a community performance, you could just pretend it's not there. You could ignore it in person and then talk about it in private with other people who are not part of the problem or part of the solution. That's called gossip. You can... Give them the cold shoulder, and then hopefully they'll learn their lesson. There's all kinds of bad and wrong ways to handle sin in a church, right? And there's all kinds of sins in a church. So we need to get this right if we're going to have a community of grace. If we're going to be great ones who value others well, and if we're going to be a great community in the kingdom of God, we need to handle sin well. So here's the fourth habit, Okay. And this is all part of welcoming one another. If you're going to do it, when, when, how do you welcome someone who's sinning against you? Number four, confront and restore other Christians. Confront and restore other Christians. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So here's the first thing to do. First, if someone sins against you, what should you do? What's the command here? Two commands, go and what? And tell him his fault. So rebuke the person privately with your intention. So it says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. With the in so what's your intention? Your intention is not to be like, I'm right, you're wrong. Recognize that. That's not the intention. The intention is to win your brother back to the Lord. That brother or sister might be one of those straying sheep. Actually, one of the ways God the Father ensures that these little ones don't perish is that when one of the 99 are wandering away, the Lord Jesus uses you to confront their sin privately, one-on-one, -on -one, to bring them back. You're actually reflecting and being God's hand and feet in that moment of pursuing that person. So go and tell them their fault, their sin in private. If your brother sins, so if he listens, you have won your brother. This is the first and lowest dosage of restorative medicine that Jesus Christ, our doctor, prescribes. You always wanna start with the lowest dosage, right? You don't wanna give unnecessarily high dosages that have side effects for no reason. If the lowest dosage works, use the lowest dosage. This is the lowest dosage to heal someone who's in sin and that sin is becoming a sickness that's hindering their health and causing them to wander away from the flock. Now, Jesus is not naive to think that every time you confront someone one-on-one -on -one, that they're gonna see it and be like, thank you so much, brother. Thank you so much, sister. I'm so glad you told me my sin. Of course I'm wrong. Would you please forgive me? Now, that's how we wanna respond. Man, I'm convicted of the heart. I sinned against God in that way and I wanna ask God for forgiveness. So you ask God for forgiveness. You ask the person for forgiveness. We wanna do that every single time. 
But Jesus is not naive. He knows that sometimes people are just stubborn, right? They just don't want to listen. I mean, how many of you who've been married? I mean, I'll just say as a counselor, as a pastor who counseled many of you. I mean, there's many times where I sit in the room with one of the spouses and then uh, another spouse saying, man, I told my spouse a hundred times this thing. You told them one time and they listened to you. And they get frustrated, right? And they're frustrated because there's not that, we, as spouses, we get this pride where we're like, yeah, I don't know if I sinned. You just wanna push that off, right? And so Jesus is not naive. So what if they don't listen? Look at verse 16. Verse 16, what does it say? If he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Here, the witnesses don't have to be the ones who witness the sin, but they're witnessing the conversation and the confrontation and the rebuke, and they're help bringing clarity to both sides and trying to verify if sin is actually here and repentance is actually necessary. So the two or three are not necessarily taking the side of the confronter. They might actually listen and be like, hey, you're, the confronter's wrong. The confronted is right. There is no sin here, okay? So you take two or three witnesses to help get clarity. Now, let's say the two or three witnesses agree with the confronter and the confronted is still sinning and he refuses to repent. That's the second level of dosage. That's not working. You need a higher dosage. What's the third level of raised dosage? Verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention to them, what do you do? What does it say? Tell the church. Tell the church. Tell the church. Now, this confrontation becomes ecclesial. This is not the final step of trying to restore a sinning brother or sister. It's the third one. You tell the church and the church now verifies it. And presumably here, if you have a church with pastors, the pastors and leaders would get involved at some point. They will be part of the process. And then the pastors will lead the church to telling the church. But then eventually you still have to tell the whole church. And the church now has to verify it by pursuing this confronted person and then calling the person to repent if they see that it's right. The church might say that the two or three are wrong. And level two is wrong and the confrontation is unnecessary. If that's true, then just the confrontation drops. But if the church says, nope, this is, a, this is a sin, they keep calling and calling for repentance and the person doesn't repent, if he doesn't listen to the church, that's stage three of your dosages, the fourth and final dosage is in verse 17, finishing verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, what should you do? What does it say? What should you do? Let him be like a... Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, treat this person like an unbeliever outside of the communion of the saints, outside of the community of the church, the congregation, the membership, the people, the church family. You treat this person like an unbeliever, even um, though you can't know for sure whether this person is really humble and childlike and really a Christian or not, you don't have the confidence to continue to affirm that they're a Christian because of their unrepentance. So this act of confrontation is the exercise of the keys of the kingdom. You are excommunicating them, excommunioning someone from the communion, which is represented and seen in the Lord's Supper. This is not to be done lightly, but if necessary, excommunication must be done in churches. It must be a prayerful exercise. Look at verse 19. If two of you agree on earth about any matter you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. So it should be prayed over. And then verse 20, look at verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. In verse 20, we should realize that Jesus promises to be present with the community as we try to restore the sinning brother or sister. And he's present with us when we excommunicate the brother or sister. Friends, you need to understand that this passage in the Bible is here because churches are supposed to do this. If churches are not doing this, if our church is not doing this, we have to ask the question, are we paying attention? Now, this doesn't mean we should run to do this. This is not a joy to do. Just like as a parent, it's not a joy to discipline my children, but it's necessary to help my children grow well. In a similar way here, this is necessary for a church's health. The only time you don't need this, these verses, is when you're in a sinless church. So if you're part of a sinless church and no one is a sinner there, you don't need these verses. You can just... You could just erase these verses from the Bible for your church, okay? But every church has sinners in it, and so we need this for all of us. Now, if a church does this well, 
they may see some people restored. We haven't seen it here in my nine years of being here, almost nine years of being here. I'm praying for it that we see some restoration here. I have seen it in my previous church. But if a church does this well, they should do it with humble mourning, mourning over their sin, mourning over the sin of the brother or sister, mourning over their own sin, prayerful that we grow in humility and not in pride and self-righteousness. You could do this in a self-righteous way, right? You could do this in a condescending way. Or you could do this with your heart shattered in a thousand pieces, in tears, but prayerfully excommunicating someone. And that's what we need to do if we're gonna be truly great Christians. All right, so if we're gonna pursue this true greatness and be a great community under Christ in the kingdom of God, we need to humble ourselves like children. We need to welcome other Christians. Welcoming other Christians means not looking down on other Christians, but valuing them. It also means confronting their sin and seeking to restore them from their sin when they wander away and when they go astray or when they're tearing at the unity of these relationships with their sin. And number five, last habit, forgive other Christians, verses 21 to 35. Peter asks a relevant question. Look at verse 21 and 22. Then Peter approached him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? All right, I get it. So I confront one-on-one, he, he repents, so I forgive him. Then I confront him again, he repents, I forgive him. How many times am I supposed to do this? He says, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Seven is like the complete number. I mean, if this brother does the same sin against me seven times a row, in a row, should I forgive him all the way up to seven times? Now, Peter's not being stingy here. Seven times is a lot when you're being sinned against, right? I mean, when someone's hurting you and they're sinning against you and they're disregarding you and they're dismissing you, forgiving someone seven times is hard. It's like, bro, this is the sixth time you've done this. Yes, I forgive you. You know, like, ah, fine. Seven is hard. And so what does Jesus say? I tell you not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but... 70 times seven. Math majors, what is that? 490, good, 490. Some people say 77 times. We're not exactly sure how to translate it. Either way, 77 times or 70 times seven. The point is forgive without limit. If seven is the number of completeness, 70 times seven is overwhelmingly, infinitely complete, right? So the the point here is not, again, to count. You know, you're at 488, or is it 488, right? Bro, you got two more, 488, 489, one more, one more forgiveness, and then I'm done with you, right? It's over after this one. That's not, that's not the point here. The point is to have a limitless willingness to forgive. And Jesus tells a story to illustrate his point. Look at verses 23 through 30. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven must, must be compared uh, can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, The one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion. That's important, had compassion. He cared, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. We'll stop there. You guys get the story? Do you see the hypocrisy in that servant? You see the hypocrisy in locking up a man and taking him away from his wife and children because he was unwilling to forgive his fellow slave the loan. So the three-year-old asks her five-year-old brother, where's dad? And the five-year-old boy says, I don't know. Mom, where's dad? And mom says, he's in jail until he pays back some money that he owes his coworker. I mean, just to be torn from your family I mean, it is, it is what he owes, so maybe there's some righteousness to that. What makes it hip- hypocritical is that this other man was just forgiven some money, right? You're forgiven, and then you don't forgive others. I mean, think about it. This man, this first man was forgiven 10,000 talents. 
And then this other guy was only for, he owed 100 denarii. Isn't that crazy? You guys are like, what? What's a talent? What's a denarii? This number, does this number mean anything to you? 10,000 talents? 100 denarii? Let me put it in today's terms. A denarii is a day's wage, okay? A denarii is a day's wage. And so a day's wage right now in Bellflower, $47,000 is the average annual income, give or take. That's $181 a day. You work 260 days a year. So $181 is a day's wage. One talent is 6,000 denarii. So one talent is $1,086,000. That's one, t- one talent. So the slave was forgiven a large sum of money. He owed 600,000 times more money than what his fellow slave owned him. So here's what it is. His fellow slave owed him $18,100. That's a lot of money, right? If someone owed you $18,100 and was lagging in paying and just was not paying, that, w- that would be, is that more than a small claims court? I don't know what, what the limit for small claims is, but right? I mean, $18,100 is a lot of money that somebody owes you, right? That's not a little money in our day. But you know how much the slave owned his master? He owed him $10 billion. $860 million. Jesus is being ridiculous with the numbers here. This man was forgiven 10 billion. This, and can you imagine this man? He's saying, I'll pay you back. Just give me time, right? I owe you $10 billion, $860 million. I got you. Like, I, like, please don't take away my wife and kids. He's like, no, you're, you're going to all be sold into slavery. No, no, please, no, I'll pay you back. I promise. And the guy's like, ah, oh, what's $10 billion, $860 million between me and you? Fine, you know, go away. I have compassion on you. That's what he did. He forgave him $10,860,000,000 of debt. And this man, being shown and forgiven and shown heartfelt compassion, turns right around to his fellow slave and starts choking him. I mean, he, as he's asking for the money, he's choking him while he's asking him for the money. Give me my 18000 Pay what you owe. Fine, you don't want to pay me? Fine. He calls the cops. It's within his legal right. Puts him in jail for $18,000. This is a ridiculous situation, right? I mean, it's, it's, so, it's, it's ludicrous how blind and how hypocritical this fellow slave is. It's obvious to anyone reading or hearing this story how out of line this slave is. He's ungrateful to his master for forgiving him that debt, he's unaware of his similar position to his fellow slave, and he doesn't see the huge difference in the amount of debt he owed versus what his fellow slave owed. And so consequently, he can't see the incongruity and the hypocrisy of his rage and his actions. And so Jesus continues the story. Look at verse 31. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. I need one clarification here. Just give me one second for this. Last week, I talked about deeply distressed disciples when they weren't, and it was sinful not because of deeply distressed as a technical word, but because it was rooted in unbelief. That's why it was sinful. Deeply distressed by itself doesn't always mean sinful. Okay, so anyway, back to the story. So they're deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, you, I mean, can you imagine what the master would be feeling? when he was choking and put in jail one of the fellow slaves for 18K, he gets him and he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, $10,860,000,000 because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And because he was angry, and that's righteous anger, his master handed him over to jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Question. How long will it take him to pay back everything that it was owed? Is this guy, is this guy getting out of the torture? No. <laughs> the guy be tortured forever. That's kind of an allusion to hell and the eternal fire that was mentioned earlier. That you will be tortured. I mean, that there is judgment, eternal conscious punishment for those apart from this forgiveness. I mean, you can feel the rage of injustice when you hear such a story. And so could the original hearers. So what's the point? The point is that if God forgives you an infinite debt and if you really truly receive it, it will inevitably transform you into a forgiver of infinitely lesser debts. 
Does that make sense? God through Christ forgives you. God's forgiveness makes you a forgiver. Unforgiveness is an issue of whether you're really a Christian or not. So Paul commands, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus Christ died to take our punishment on the cross so that we would not be punished in hell. This is his infinite grace. And you know why God can forgive us? Some people say, why, why do you guys talk about a cross? Why does someone need to die on a cross and pay for our sins? Why is there a bloody cross? Why does God demand judgment? God, your God, your Christian God, is such a bloodthirsty God. What do you say to that if you're a Christian? If you're not a Christian, that's what you might be thinking. The cross is so unnecessary. Why does God, I mean, and it's his son, the father judging and damning his son for, for us? What kind of God is that? Why does Christianity need a cross? Why is God so angry? And Tim Keller writes an answer. On the cross, God does not demand our, our blood, but offers his own. All forgiveness of any deep wrong and injustice entails suffering on the forgiver's part. If someone truly wrongs you, because of our deep sense of justice, we can't just shrug it off. We, have, we sense there is a debt. We can either A, make the perpetrator pay down the debt, the debt you feel as you would take it out of his hide in vengeance, in which case the evil spreads into us and hardens us because we're getting revenge, or B, you can forgive, but that is enormously difficult. But that's the only way from stopping evil from hardening you is by not getting revenge. Secondly, if we can't forgive without suffering because of our sense of justice, it's not surprising to learn that even God couldn't forgive us without suffering. Coming in the person of Jesus dying on the cross to absorb our debt. And so Jesus gives the main point in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless you forgive everyone, unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote along this vein, when God was merciful, when he revealed Jesus Christ to us as our brother, when he won our hearts by his love, this was the beginning of our instruction in divine love. When God was merciful to us, we learned to be merciful with our brethren. When we receive forgiveness instead of judgment, we too were made ready to forgive our brethren. What, did, what God did to us, we then owed to others. The more we received, the more we were able to give. The more meager our brotherly love, the less we were giving, we were living by God's mercy and love. Thus, God himself taught us to meet one another as God has met us in Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. I mean, this is what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we what? Also forgive our debtors. And then he says right after that in verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive their others' offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But, this is Matthew 6, 15, if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. You hear that? If you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. And that's why I started fencing the table by saying, don't take the Lord's Supper today if you have unforgiveness in your heart. Go take care of that first before you, you take the Lord's Supper. Because you will either have a heart for Jesus or you'll have a heart of unforgiveness toward others. But you can't have both. You will either have a heart for Jesus or a heart of unforgiveness. But you can't have both. Why? Because to not forgive a sin that Jesus paid for or that God will avenge in hell belittles the cross of Christ and the righteous judgment of God. And Christians can't do that consistently. It's against our very nature. So at the end of the day, to recap, if you want to be great in the kingdom, the one who takes part and perpetuates this kingdom community needs to humbly trust in Jesus, welcome other Christians, value every other Christian, confront sin and take part in restoration and forgive other Christians. Brothers and sisters, church family, let's cultivate this community by humbling ourselves, welcoming others, seeking others out, confronting sin and restoring each other and constantly forgiving each other. Jesus welcomes us. Jesus edifies us. Jesus values each of you. He seeks to correct you and restore you. Jesus forgives you. I have a few questions here as I close, just to reflect on Christ one last time here. How does Jesus value each one of us who strays from God and the flock? You know how Jesus values us? By becoming the scapegoat for us, who was sent out from the flock and sent out from the covenant community. The high priest would confess his sin on the scapegoat and all your sins would be confessed on that scapegoat and that scapegoat would be banished from the presence of God and the presence of God's community into the wilderness for our sins. So why can Jesus pull you back into the congregation? 
because he was excommunicated from the congregation. That's why he can restore us from our sins. He was excommunicated on the cross. He was the scapegoat who was banished from the community. How does Jesus forgive? How can Jesus forgive us? He can forgive us because when he was on the cross, he was not shown the forgiving side of God. He was condemned, not forgiven, not that he needs forgiveness, he didn't sin, but with our sins on him, with, with us, with our sins on him, he wasn't forgiven on the cross. He was damned and condemned on the cross for us, condemned and judged and executed as the propitiation for our sins. And how does Jesus help us humble ourselves like little children? This is Christmas, right? God the Son becomes a man and becomes a baby. Jesus actually became a child, right? He actually became a baby and actually became a child and humbled himself by becoming a servant, by becoming a man and trusting the Father. And even when he was praying before the cross, he humbly trusted the Father. Lord, if there's another way, let this cup be passed from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done because I humbly trust you like a child humbly trusts his parent. So we now can humbly trust the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May God help us to pursue true greatness. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take this word and hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Forgive us for our hypocrisy and unforgiveness. Forgive us for our excuses that keep us from confronting sin and restoring others. Forgive us for looking down on others in self-righteousness and arrogance. Forgive us for not welcoming other Christians. And forgive us for our pride that needs you to prove yourself to us before we can trust you. Forgive us for our arrogance. Humble us before you and give us the greatness of your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna take a few minutes for takeaways, but a few special instructions this week.